Hey guys, welcome back to Storytime Podcast. Thank you so much for joining me. I love doing this. If you're listening on Apple, please leave me a five-star review. And don't forget to check out my social media websites. That's Storytime Slayer. And that's going to be story underscore time underscore slayer for Instagram. Every week I post additional pictures, um, old video clips, and information to go along with these stories. So yes, definitely check that out. And you can always email me at storytimepods at gmail.com. Now let's get started. Today we're going to be talking about somebody especially shocking. We're going to be talking about John Wayne Gacy. How does a man like John Wayne Gacy come about? Okay, now just to refresh anybody who maybe hasn't heard of who he is or hasn't heard about in a long time I actually knew very very little about him and he is one of the most evil serial killers John Wayne Gacy killed 33 young men burying 27 of them under his family home in Chicago crazy okay let's get started John Wayne Gacy was born 1942 on St. Patrick's Day in Chicago, Illinois. He grew up in a home with his mother and his father and two sisters. It was a modest family home in a little little community. His dad was Polish and was reported to be very controlling and dominating and was very firm-handed and disciplining. So basically, his dad had a Jekyll and Hyde personality when he drank and when he did drink he would get really angry and duel out very harsh punishments and we would classify this as abuse now but back then I think it was a lot more acceptable for men to be controlling and be rather abusive when disciplining their kids and actually have really harsh restrictions to abide by so that's how he grew up now it's believed that he was a closeted homosexual and confused about his sexuality from a very young age He was caught a few times for having stolen silk underwear. And one time he even reportedly asked a friend of his, I wonder what I would look like dressed as a woman. Now, this was not approved by his dad. I'm sure there was a lot of beating that gay out of him, which was common. You know, he grew up in the 50s and this was not an open time for homosexuality. It was not accepted. And his dad did not accept it. His dad whooped his ass many times and His dad wanted him to be a man's man. At about 18, he ran away. I'm not really sure how an 18-year-old runs away, but okay. He ran away, and he that's his words, too. And he went to Vegas. When he went to Vegas, he actually began working for a mortician. And he would stay there in the mortuary home. And one time, he recalled actually getting into a coffin with a deceased young man and caressing his body. It was shortly after this incident that he called his dad and asked if he could come back home packed it up and went back to Chicago he was only gone for about a year and a half and um when he came back he was kind of different different in a good way by 1963 he was the manager at a shoe store he was about 22 in 64 on a handwritten timeline that John wrote himself he actually met and became engaged to a woman named Mary after a very short whirlwind engagement they got married in September even though Mary's dad didn't really want her to marry John Now, she came from a really good family, and because of that, they actually moved their little family, John and Mary, to Iowa. This is where her dad owned some KFC chain food restaurants, and he actually had John run three of them. 
John had also finally won his dad's approval, something that he strived for his whole life. And that's something he's maintained is uh, that he wanted his dad's approval. It's rather strange that he mentioned this in his timeline the year following his marriage, but um, this is also when he had his first male sexual experience. Okay. Sometimes between 1964 and 1965, he joined the JCs. Now I Googled it and this is what I got. They are the United States Junior Chamber, also known as the JCs, JC or JCI USA. It's a leadership training and civic organization for people between like 18 and 40. It's a branch of Junior Chamber International. So they have a lot of politicians and like elite community members. John thrived as a JC. This is because he would arrange all the things these men's like to do behind closed doors. So he would have like sex workers, prostitutes, porn, alcohol, drugs. And it's worth mentioning also that he was super likable. Like people liked John Wayne Gacy and they had a good time with him. So while this was going on, you know, married, working with the JCs, uh, John and Mary had two kids, Michael, who was born in 1967, and Christine, who was born in 1968. Now listen to this, though. When his wife had their son, him and a buddy went out for drinks. Now, again, this is a different era. This was totally normal for him not to be too involved in the delivery and for him and his buddy to go out for drinks and a cigar. But they went out for drinks and women. And his friend said something about if they couldn't find women, they could at least find a man. And that a blowjob was a blowjob. Kind of indicating that it's okay if a man has to give you a blowjob. At the end of the night, him and his friend actually didn't pick up women and they went back and they exchanged oral sex. So this was in celebration of him having his first son with his wife in 1967. Whew. Also in 1967, the family moved to Waterloo, Iowa, so John could start a new job. He really hated working for his father-in-law. This is the same year he was awarded Man of the Year in Waterloo. So no one expected this hardworking, outstanding member of community, father and husband John Gacy, was gonna be arrested for sodomy in the middle of these great times of his life. Okay, so apparently he'd been having a sexual relationship with a fellow JC member's son. He'd heard that the boy, who was about 15 years old, was known to do homosexual acts for money. And um, it started because they kind of agreed on a price so he said the guy owed him and this kind of created like a little relationship between them so supposedly the young man wanted money for something so he threatened john and eventually just told his dad everything that was going on he just confessed to the whole thing so john was actually charged for the crime and he was sentenced to 10 years he lost everything his wife his kids his reputation she divorced him packed up moved it on Everything was Dunsies. When his wife divorced him, she took the kids and they never spoke to him ever, ever again. While he was in prison, by the way, he was only in prison for 18 months. His father passed away Christmas of 1969 and he had worked so hard to get his dad's approval only for him to die in prison while John, you know, had humiliated him and his father with those crimes. I think this whole situation with his father has a lot to do with his criminal behavior later okay so he gets released from prison as early as 1970 okay and he only gets a one-year parole so he moves back to chicago his mom helps him buy a house and she actually lives there with him because remember she's newly widowed 
Now, no one in Chicago knew of John's history. He'd only had one year of parole, like I said. And after the conviction, the records were sealed, so it was seriously hidden, done, closed. He joined the Chicago Jaycees, and life went on. In fact, not only did he join the Jaycees in Chicago, but he thrived there. He would even hold huge parties at his home with like hundreds of people. And he even became a certified clown called Pogo the Clown. And uh, his clown got a lot of flack from the clown community because it was too scary. But people loved John. They loved him dressing as a clown. And he was like really living it up. He was the man. Okay. 1972 was a really big year for John. He started a successful business called PDM Contractors Corporation. He began dating an old friend of his sister's named Carol, and she actually moved in with him to be engaged. Now, she was a divorcee from a rather abusive ex, and she had two young daughters. And what blows my mind is that John, despite his double life, he really loved them. He called it his self-made family in that's something that's so complex about a man like him is because he was so confused. He loved Carol. He loved their girls, but he also had this weird desire for young men and he was just living a double life where he'd cruise around looking for young men and then also hold these great parties and have great business contacts and just kind of, you know, he won man of the year. It's so crazy. So before Carol and him married one week uh, one week before him and Carol married he'd been accused of rape by two young men so supposedly he'd been cruising around impersonating an officer named Jack Hanley later you'll find that Gacy would claim Jack Hanley to be like an alter ego he made up but he was actually just mimicking an officer he'd known from years before he would use the position of authority to take advantage of young men to have sex with them. Now, because they tried to blackmail him in this specific case, the whole situation got dismissed. No charges were pressed and everyone believed that Gacy was like falsely framed for blackmail. So at this point, John's just been cruising around paying for young sex with men. He's not killed anyone to this point that we know of okay he never confessed to killing anyone before 1972 so a couple other reasons why 1972 is such a big year is that that's the year that john first killed he was only 29 okay so carol and the girls were out of town and like i said this is before they got married he had picked up a young man named tim mccoy from a bus station tim was a runaway and john had him over for casual sex now, the following morning while they were preparing breakfast, I guess Tim had a knife. Um, the story is jumbled depending on what source you find. And But for whatever reason, John said that he was in fear for his life. And he took the knife and he stabbed Tim. Tim is the only victim of John Gacy's to be stabbed. Gacy actually said he climaxed when he killed him. And this set off a very fatal realization. John realized it was just as thrilling and felt just as good to kill young men as it did to have sexual relations with them. After killing him, John buried him in the crawl space and he literally barely finished cleaning the kitchen before Carol and the girls got home. Okay, so this set something off in John Wayne Gacy and he changed. This really enhanced the double life that he was living. So I'm going to get to his crimes as they unfolded for the rest of the world. But in 1974, his 
double life is going to begin to crack. John began to be gone at odd hours of the night, all night, and there was a high volume of young men around his house. See, all John hired was young men between the ages of like 15 and 25. And Carol actually found suspicious things. Now, she never went out to the garage, and one time she did, and she found some really strange things. In fact, I'm just going to play a recording that I have of Carol. After he left, I went in the garage and I saw a blanket on the floor, a, a red light on the wall, a mirror, and some heavy chains sitting on the floor. I don't know what they were for. I never, I never asked him because I didn't want him to know that I had been in that garage. Pretty spooky if you ask me. Okay, so around Mother's Day in 1975 is when Carol kind of confronted him about maybe some things she's found or the young men. And Gacy did finally confirm to her that he was in fact a bisexual and really no longer desired for them to have sex. That summer, Carol left John, took the girls, and John didn't chase her. I think it made things easier for him, and he'd already built up a great reputation. And I think the double life, he couldn't keep up the family facade anymore. He called this time period after Carol left the cruising years because he was just cruising around, picking up men. It was easy. And he'd manipulated his car with antennas. He had a light that he could put on top to make it look like a cop vehicle. Now... By all appearances, John Wayne Gacy was still a nice man. I'm sure people have their suspicions about him being a homosexual. In the book, the attorney wrote, John indicated like, hello, my neighbors could see the young men coming and going. You know, let's remember people were really uncomfortable with the idea of homosexuality back then. And he was such an easy guy to like that I'm sure no one really wanted to talk about it due to the era that they were in. So plus he had these immaculate housekeeping skills okay so he's a great host great entertainer immaculate home successful businessman and uh carol didn't really taint his reputation when she left him so there was nothing to suspect that anything was off about him from all outside accounts now i'd like to point out that he was extremely manipulative though to make people like him so Kind of like when Ed Kemper used to drive around and pick up hitchhikers, he would see what he did and how he looked to see the reaction that he was giving his passengers to kind of study behavior and mimic it. And I think that John probably did similar things. He would kind of see how people reacted when he when he acted a certain way or said certain things so that he could stay within the norms of what was socially acceptable and really likable. But I also think he must have had a good sense of humor too. So who's to say, right? Before I get into the timeline of his crimes, I'm going to tell you about some really close calls that almost got him caught, and you're not going to believe he got away with it. So, December 30th, 1977, he kidnaps, rapes, and tortures a 19-year-old man named Robert Donnelly. He did not kill or keep him. He actually dropped him off alive in a parking lot, I think, and Robert reported it. John claimed this was consensual sex slavery and the police believed him and I'm telling y'all like I'm telling y'all that's got to be the stigmatism around homosexuality back then because you know Jeffrey Dahmer actually had a victim get away from him and police officers found him wandering around but because of it being so obvious that they were homosexuals, they believed Jeffrey Dahmer when he said that his lover was drunk and they were kind of like in an argument and he was just going to take him home. They were like, oh my gosh, yes, please, both of you, get the hell out of here, go home. So, a few months after 
John Wayne Gacy did this to Robert Donnelly, kidnapping him, torturing him, and dropping him off. He actually did it again in March 1978, just a couple months later, to a guy named Jeffrey Riginal. Now, he was arrested for that July 15th and was released until trial, but little did anybody know there was going to be a way bigger case against him coming soon. See, later that year, the same year that he kidnapped both those men, he was caught up in the missing case of a boy named Robert. Now, it was December 1978 when a boy named Robert, who was 15, went missing. He worked at Nissan's pharmacy. And um, it was his mom's birthday. She arrived to pick him up at 9 p.m. See, his family had waited on him for the cake and celebrating, which I thought was really sweet. Um, He told his mom he was first going to go talk to a man about a job. A job that paid way better so he could save up for this car that he really wanted. After a while, she went back to look for her son, and he was gone. You see, unfortunately, that same night, John Wayne Gacy was at Nissan Pharmacy. He'd forgotten something from his meeting earlier with the owners. You see, he was meeting with the owner about some work that his company was going to do. By 11 p.m., Rob's family immediately called the police, and they figured out the man who had Rob been talking to was Gacy. Police went to question Gacy, and he was totally put out by their questioning and just didn't have time for it. He had an uncle who was dying, um, and he kind of just got the police to go away, agreeing he would come give a statement much later. And um, here's why the police needed to leave. See, it was true that John had an uncle dying that night in the hospital, and he needed to go there. But he actually had just completed kidnapping and killing Rob, stripping him naked before the police could ever connect Rob to Gacy. In fact, he had got him comfortable enough to show him some clown tricks at his home. And the clown tricks were just a hoax to get the young men in a very vulnerable situation. And then he would actually usually get them to put their own rope that he would make a tourniquet with to strangle them. He would actually get them to put it on themselves thinking he was going to do a clown trick. Okay. Gacy didn't know this, but even though he denied meeting Rob and giving him a job offer, There was witnesses that put him there, and the police began digging up dirt on John. This is when they found the sodomy charges from Iowa, and that really freaked them out. And the way that he was so dismissive to their questioning really freaked them out, too. They thought maybe he was holding Rob hostage. He was holding his body still. He was trying to find a way to dispose of it with police tailing him. So, within a day or two, they were actually able to get a search warrant for Gacy's property. And the most important things that they actually found when searching for Ron Peace's body was a receipt to the pharmacy that put them there the night Rob went missing. It was in Gacy's trash can. And they also found some jewelry that they knew clearly did not belong to them. Because one of them was a high school class ring, and it actually belonged to a John Zink a young man who worked for Gacy that was missing. They called him Little John and John Gacy Big John. So when he was missing, they compiled a list of missing boys also linked to John Gacy. So they had about seven young men that they believed John Gacy could potentially be leaked linked to kidnapping and killing suspicions. Not enough though. They needed another warrant to get more out of his house. In the meantime, John Wayne Gacy lawyered up. But don't worry, he didn't take a single damn bit of advice from his lawyer. He thought he knew better. So while police were telling Gacy to find proper cause to get another search warrant of the property, he would like invite them in, shoot the shit, make them drinks. When they followed him to restaurants, 
per tailing them as part of his job. He would like buy their meals, send drinks to their table. It was a fun game and Gacy thought he could actually convince him. He was just at the wrong place at the wrong time over and over and over. (laughs) So part of this gimmick of Gacy's to win the police over is he would actually invite them to his home. And uh, one of the times the investigators were in Gacy's home just hanging out, they used the restroom and the furnace kicked on. And when it did, an awful smell came through the vents. And the officer directly linked the smell of their county morgue to the smell he was smelling. And he knew it was decomposing bodies. So days later, this combined with what they found in their other warrants being, you know, the high school jewelry and stuff like that that was enough for them to get another search warrant of the property but before they could get this warrant here's what unfolded you're not gonna believe this okay so wednesday december 20th this was a week after rob had disappeared from neeson pharmacy john went to his lawyer in a very high and drunken stupor very very late at night and confessed to every crime he'd committed Now, I'm going to give you guys the full timeline of John Wayne Gacy's crimes. So, as I mentioned, 1972 was the very first murder. That was the one that I outlined and described, the only stabbing. Two years went by before he killed anybody again. Then, 1974, he killed and buried a teenager in his garage. 75, he killed another employee, John Butkovich. So, these have all been three murders at least a year apart. 76 marked the beginning of the cruising years. This was after Carol left him. A month after Carol, this is when it began. March, he killed a runaway named Daryl Sampson. May, Randall Reefit, and a couple hours later, Stephen Stapleton. June, Michael Bonin, and only 10 days later, William Carroll. He killed four more unidentified men between June and August. October, he killed friends Kenneth Parker and Michael Marino, and then another employee, William Bundy. December, okay, two months later, he killed employee Greg Godzik. Okay, that's all in just one year, 76. A month later, January 77, he kills employee John Zink. This is the one whose class ring they found. Now, the timeline's hazy, but between January and March of 77, he killed John Prestige and another unidentified young man. March 1977, he killed 19-year-old Matthew Bowman, and then he took a short break. October, he killed 21-year-old Russell Nelson, then Robert Winch. November, next month, Timothy Boiling. In December, he killed Marine David Talsma. And then it was just one week after the Marine that he kidnapped, tortured, and then released Robert Donnelly. And he actually got dropped. Remember, there was no legal charges pressed against him. So that was only year two. In two years, he did all those murders. Okay, so 78 would be the last of Gacy's cruising years. February is when he killed William Kindred. And so up to now, all of these young men had been lured and killed by asphyxiation and then buried on his property. All of them. All 27 he buried on his property under his crawl space. Yes. In shallow graves, mind you. Okay, so he would usually gain their trust by talking to them and doing clown tricks and then he would get them to try like the handcuff trick which is where you um put the handcuffs on and slip them off casey could perform this trick because of course he had the keys and he was a clown and he knew how to do this and then he would do the rope trick and like i mentioned before he'd actually get them to put the rope on themselves so this was his um style this was a pretty specific way that he would kill the men but 
after those 27, he actually dropped the last of his victims off the I-55 bridge. He did these one June 2nd in November, and then his final victim was Robert Peace. So yes, he confessed to all of them in one night. But remember, he confessed to his lawyer who he already had on retainer. So he was free to leave when he sobered up. And he did. (laughs) Yeah, he refused to go to the hospital or get any psychiatric help. And he just rolled out of there. So luckily, officers had already been tailing him, though, for a couple days. And they were pending another search warrant and didn't have anything that they knew they could arrest him on. But they noticed he was acting really, really strange and were afraid he was going to potentially kill himself now mind you they don't know that he's really looking at about 33 murders they think he's just got about seven bodies under his belt so they find a reason to arrest him and i don't know if it really happened or not but they arrest him for exchanging marijuana at a gas station now while in jail despite the fact he was reminded time and time again of his constitutional rights to shut the fuck up He kept telling bits and pieces of his crimes to police and basically anybody who would listen. He eventually drew a map of the crawl space and where 27 bodies were buried. 27 bodies buried under his crawl space. Oh my gosh. Men ranging from 15 to 25. And he also had five men he dumped off the I-55 bridge into the river and several men that he'd attacked but did not successfully harm enough to indicate he was actually a killer and that police should be in fear of him i mean i can't believe it took him years only three years to accumulate that i mean there was a couple that he killed but a majority of those men 30 of them he killed within three years he was sentenced to death for his crimes and um, he was actually killed by lethal injection 14 years after sentencing which was may 10th 1994 He was only 52, and I got to say, that's one of the shortest death row waiting period sentences that I've ever seen from sentencing to execution. You know, usually it's like decades, like 28 years, 30 years, you know, shit like that. What happened was the prosecution actually had a really credible witness or an expert, I think, that said John Wayne Gacy was insane during the time of committing crimes, like in the actual act, but he was competent to stand trial so they wouldn't let him use the insanity defense, which I thought was so weird. That was so crazy to me. Like it just, they just didn't accept it. So on top of all the heinous crimes John Z committed, one of the tragic things is that he spent many years later recounting his confessions and he continued to do this until he was fatally executed now the unfortunate thing when people do this is that there's never an answer there's never an understanding of why they lived a devil life why did he do these things why what happened was that his sexuality just haunted him could he maybe keep what he did repressed better by killing the boys instead of letting them go free I don't know anyway thank you guys for tuning in this is one of the darker stories to me I know that we've talked about stories involving moms and kids and you know, love and lust. And I still find this story to be one of the like most heartbreaking, probably just because of the vast amount of victims. I mean, even the boys after passing, you have to think about their families and their friends and just all the people in the community that were probably shocked and the JCs and 
employees of, you know, John Wayne Gacy. Now, a lot of people theorize that John Wayne Gacy maybe didn't work alone and that some of the boys that worked for him had to have known what he was doing because reportedly they sometimes were the ones who would dig the gra- the, the graves underneath his um, home in his crawl space. So could they have known? I don't know. Another thing about John Wayne Gacy's crawl space that might answer a lot of questions is that him and three other houses built on that street were a little bit lower than the houses surrounding them. And for that reason, they always had to keep a sump pump in their crawl spaces because it would collect a lot more moisture. So because of that, the ground was really soft down there, making it a lot easier for him to dig because his crawl space was only like two and a half feet he was digging basically with like a hand shovel in his hands but the ground was so moist and then this helped him better cover up the smell you know he kind of had a bit of an excuse because there was always a bit of an odor under these homes due to the heavy moisture content and he would just spread lye and just say the moisture the moisture it's the moisture under the house I can't help it anyway guys before we close out, I'm going to tell y'all one more weird thing about John Wayne Gacy. So as I mentioned way earlier, he was an immaculate housekeeper. Everything had a place. He was super organized. And amid the second search of John Gacy's house, he agreed to go to the home with police and kind of show them where he buried some bodies. There was one body out in the garage that they specifically needed to know almost an exact location because he put him under concrete. So he went out there to the home with police officers and his lawyer to do that. And not kidding you, he was really put out and annoyed by the fact that they were not putting his tools back where they belonged and kind of leaving the house a wreck as if he was going to come home and have to clean it up, his lawyer said in the book. So definitely... If you're interested in these little tidbits of information and want a more in-depth look at John Wayne Gacy and his criminal defense attorney and what happened behind the scenes of his case, definitely check out the book that his attorney wrote. It is about defending John Wayne Gacy, and he claims him to be the most evil killer ever. Okay, guys, I'm closing up today's episode. Thank you so much for listening. Tell your friends. Word of mouth is this the best for me. Thank you guys so much and have a great day.